exciting to see people taking an interest in translation and uh, celebrating the work that translators all over the world do. You know, there are hundreds of thousands of translators and interpreters throughout the world. And that's really the point of this book is to lift them up and to get people to see why their work really matters. Welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Joanna Rowell. And I'm Forrest Gordon. Forrest, don't you think that language is a really beautiful thing? Um, sure. One aspect of language I've always loved are untranslatable words, or words that don't have counterparts in the English language. For example, the Japanese word mano no aware is used to describe the awareness of impermanence, or the gentle sadness that lurks behind life. Another example is sobremesa, which is a Spanish word that means the time spent after lunch or dinner talking to the people you shared the meal with. And yes, I do apologize for how I'm pronouncing these words. Hmm. I wonder how Star Trek's Universal Translator would deal with those words. Who knows? If I recall correctly, they, those translators work pretty well, but every once in a while they malfunction. In Deep Space Nine, for example, they were unable to translate the robotic-sounding language of the Breen. I know that this is a setup, but it's scary you know that. <laughs> And what about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy's babblefish? You mean the small, leech-like fish that you put in your ear that automatically translates everything for you? Yeah, that one. <laughs> well, it would probably do a better job than the free online translator with the same name. <laughs> I tried to get the online babblefish to translate the Spanish word sobremesa, which I mentioned earlier, into English, and it translated it into desktop. And, and what did it mean again? It meant the time spent after lunch or dinner talking to the people you shared the meal with. I can see where they got desktop. Yes, yes. And it also gave me the message. Did you know machine translation is only 70% accurate? Get this translated by a certified human translator for only 10 cents. <laughs> well, well, our guest today, Natalie Kelly, knows a great deal about translation of both the human and machine variety. 
She is Chief Research Officer at Common Sense Advisory, a market research firm that focuses on global business and language services. She has just written a book about some of the translation issues we've just been discussing. Here she is introducing herself and her new book. My name is Natalie Kelly, and the title of the book is Found in Translation, How Language Shapes Our Lives and Transforms the World. And my co-author is Yost Secha, and the two of us wrote this book together. Did you catch the title of the book? It's called Found in Translation, How Language Shapes Our Lives and Transforms the World. In this book, among other things, Natalie discusses the online translation program Google Translate. After my experience with the Babelfish online translator, I was curious to hear Natalie's opinion of Google's version. Google Translate does a pretty good job for some language combinations, but Google Translate is a statistical machine translation engine, which means that it's basically, its quality depends on the amount of content that's available for it to harvest. So the more content there is in both languages that it's translating into and out of, the better the quality will be. So obviously the quality for one language combination might be very different uh, than it is for another combination. So often Google will launch a language that's in a, uh, a beta form or even an alpha form, and the quality might not be that fantastic, you know, the quality that you would get from a human translator, uh, but it has to start somewhere in order to begin mining and, and collecting data on the web. You know, usually they won't launch it until it reaches a certain level of quality. And then you see advances as, as it continues to get better and better with time. That makes sense. The more data Google Translate has, the better it does. Right, but it's even more complicated than that. Google doesn't just literally translate every single word individually. No, that's right. What they're actually using is something called uh, corpora or bodies of information, um, bilingual corpora, which are basically databases of uh, translated text that's available in, in two languages, so the source language and the target language together. And the more of those uh, bilingual texts are available, the more the quality improves with time. That answer made me wonder if some languages are more intrinsically difficult than others to translate, or if it's just a matter of how much data is present for each language. It's really all down to the amount of information that's available. That is really what determines the quality for a tool like Google Translate. There is another type of machine translation tool that is really um, different from statistical machine translation. It's called rules-based translation, uh, machine translation. And in those kinds of tools, those technologies actually create rules uh, that relate specifically to the languages that are being translated. So instead of using large volumes of information, it's actually creating rules, you know, that if this is this appears in this context or this way, it needs to be translated this way. So it's it's a much uh, it's a very different type of, of tool than what Google Translate uses. In those kinds of tools, the type of language does really matter because it tends to be easier to create rules for languages that are linguistically similar, whereas languages that are linguistically very different it's much harder to create all kinds of rules for those kinds of languages. So do you remember how earlier I mentioned that the online Babelfish translator informed me that machine translation is only 70% effective and that I should pay 10 cents for a human to translate my word of interest? It makes you wonder about the roles humans versus machines will play in the future of language translation. 
In other words, will we always need humans to be able to successfully translate language? Humans will be part of the translation process because, as we know, humans are needed on the development side, you know, the engineering side. Even if you're using a machine translation tool like Google Translate, there are human beings involved in fine-tuning those tools and making sure that the code is written properly and, you know, finding the information for those tools to mine. Uh, so humans definitely have to be involved. And, you know, the reality is that language evolves all the time. And so human beings are usually at the forefront of that. You know, we're usually the first to know when new slang enters the language or, you know, new terms are being created, new acronyms, new memes. Um, so usually humans are the first to detect that and start using it. And when something has a double meaning, you know, humans are still able to catch that, oh, this is really what they're really trying to say is this other thing, not necessarily what the dictionary would say. So humans will probably always be part of the translation process. That's what Ray Kurzweil said uh, when I interviewed him. And that's also the opinion of the folks at Google uh, from, what, from what they told us when we interviewed them. It was at this point in the interview that we brought up Star Trek's Universal Translator. And we asked Natalie whether we can expect companies like Google to be producing this technology anytime soon. <laughs> well, you know, we are kind of there in a sense. Uh, Google Translate actually has a voice option, and you can get translation into and out of many languages from devices. In fact, there are mobile phone apps now that you can press a button, you can be connected instantly to an interpreter for 180 languages, but it's a human interpreter. But, you know, to someone who didn't know that it's a human interpreter, maybe they could be convinced it's just your phone doing the interpretation. <laughs> And the same thing is true with video. You can actually project a video interpreter um, on, you know, using a computer, using a smartphone. Um, but there are still humans involved right now. You know, we may get to a time when automated translation is more common. Um, we surely will get to a time when that's more common. But having a universal translator that can instantly translate into every language, I think we're a long way off from that. And even when you watch the sci-fi movies and you see the universal translators, there are always problems. You know, they blame the translator or they'll say, oh, my universal translator is not working. <laughs> so they need a human engineer to come and fix it <laughs> sometimes. There you see, she agrees with me that the universal translator on Star Trek is not so great. You could never understand what the Breen were saying on right. Deep Space Nine. Right, right, right. <laughs> But can machine translation, could that go beyond human language? Uh, Star Trek accepting. Could that go beyond human language, allowing us to communicate with animals like whales or chimpanzees or dogs? That would be awesome. Like, totally. Like in the movie Up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I asked Natalie what she thought of this crazy idea. Well, you know, I actually like that more expansive view of communication tools and, you know, interspecies communication tools, you know, something definitely that is worth looking at and thinking about. But even just within humans, there are so many more options for communication. So, you know, one thing I've written about is the fact that we might need intergenerational translators and, you know, male-female translators and, you know, things like this. And you know, there's no reason why with voice recognition and different technologies when you mash them all together, that you couldn't have, you know, if you had a large enough corpus of a recorded uh, voice, like, you know, a, a grandfather or, you know, someone who's actually passed away, if you had enough audio files in that 
language or with that person's voice, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to have the voice of an ancestor reading you a story before you go to sleep or reading the news with, you know, the voice of uh, Eva Longoria or George Clooney or whomever your favorite celebrity might be. You know, that is totally possible um, and will happen and become more, more popular in the future. And I think translation will just be one of the ways that we transform information to make it personal, to personalize it, to make it more useful to us and to make it more special to us, more customized and individualized. I don't know how I feel about one of my dead relatives or George Clooney reading me the news in the morning. It's, it's a fascinating idea. A little weird. Yeah. <laughs> Translation, like many things, is most amusing when it goes wrong. Mm. And there are even urban legends about mistranslations. A famous one is that President Kennedy supposedly said, in German, I am a jelly donut instead of I'm a citizen of Berlin. We asked Natalie to tell us more about these translational myths. Yes. Well, there's lots of urban legends and myths that get disseminated around the, inter- the Internet. Uh, there is the one, like you mentioned, that uh, JFK called himself a, je- a jelly donut uh, when he said, I'm a Berliner, which is also a jelly donut, but no one in Berlin, no one in Germany took it to mean that he was calling himself a jelly donut. That's actually a myth that was perpetuated and spread around the Internet and has spread you know, in emails and things like that. Um, that's a myth. There are lots of these myths out there about mistranslation. Um, another famous one is the Chevy Nova. A lot of people know that in Spanish, the words Nova, they mean doesn't go, doesn't run. Um, but the reality is that in Spanish, you actually pronounce those two phrases differently. You say Nova and you say Nova. So the accent is slightly different. So no one confused Nova with doesn't run. That's actually a myth. When Chevy launched that product in the Latin American market, nobody thought it was strange. Nobody said, oh, ho, ho, this is funny, doesn't run. They, the word Nova exists in Spanish as well. Um, so that's another myth that's out there, and we talk about that in the book. And we do have plenty of, you know, it's funny to me that there are so many myths out there because there are plenty of true stories about companies that have made major mistakes when uh, translating and moving into other markets that we don't need to invent new ones. It really does seem weird that we invent mistranslations when they're already so common. There are a a lot of examples of real mistranslations in the book. Here's Natalie describing a particularly good one. One pretty funny one is the company Clairol that does hair care products. Uh, They actually had a product called the Mist Stick, and it's a mist like has steam, it's a curling iron for women to curl their hair. And so it launched this product in the U.S. market, it was very popular, and it launched it in Europe. But in Germany, the word mist means manure. So that product was not very successful in the German market. You know, not many people want to curl their hair with a manure stick. (laughs) So that's a a fairly recent example of, of a company making a major blunder with a product name. Yeah, I don't think I would want to use a manure stick on my hair. No, Uh, (laughs) though I don't have hair. (laughs) Well, one reason why mistranslations occur is due to something called false friends. What's a false friend? You. 
Just Ouch. kidding. Just oh, kidding. Man. Actually, a false friend is a word that looks the same in both <laughs> languages, but the meaning of the word is completely different. For example, the English word ankle sounds a lot like the German word ankle. The German word is spelled E-N-K-E-L. But the English ankle is a part of your foot. In German, ankle means grandchild. So that's an example of a false friend. And these can cause a lot of problems. So not me. I'm okay? Well, uh, jury's out. So one false friend that we talk about in the book is the word intoxicado. And the word intoxicado, a lot of people will see that and think, oh, that must mean intoxicated in English. But in reality, it means poisoned. Um, so, and it's a very hard word to translate because if somebody says, oh, he is intoxicado, it can mean many different things. It can mean many different things depending on the context. So if you say the person has intoxicación solar, it means they have sun poisoning. If you say intoxicación por plomo, it means lead poisoning. So you can't really in English say somebody is poisoned and get the same meaning across. You have to actually explain he has sun poisoning or something like that. So there's a famous case in a Florida hospital of a man who they asked the family members uh, what was wrong with him. They said he's intoxicado in Spanish. And the bilingual staff member actually interpreted that by saying he is intoxicated. What happened was he was given the wrong course of treatment and he ended up becoming quadriplegic. And so you can see how the single translation of one word can really make an impact in someone's life. This uh, particular word is often called the $71 million word because after that there was a lawsuit that followed and a $71 million settlement. It's a, a, a very good example of a false friend and how tragic the consequences can be and also how economically irresponsible it is to not provide translation uh, for people who need those services because in the end it actually can cost a lot more money to correct the mistakes that are made um, when translation isn't provided. Leaving aside for now the world of science fiction like machine translators and babblefish, translation has always played an important role in our lives. Right, and this book really highlights that we take translation for granted. Take, for example, religion. Most of the people who read any holy book are reading the translation. You know, they're not reading the authentic source text. And granted, in some languages, you do read the source text um, in its native language. But for anyone who reads the Bible, for example, most people are reading that in translation unless they happen to read the original languages in which it was written. Um, and yes, you know, in the process of translating sacred texts, there can be a lot of controversial decisions that are made by human beings. Um, you know, recently there was a Harvard scholar that came out and said that Jesus had a wife because there was a, a, a translation of a term that was apparently meant to indicate that the, that the woman was married and, and that the word was wife. And there have been many cases of this over the years, over the years, you know, debating the word virgin. You know, was it really the Virgin Mary or does that word really mean maiden or a woman who's unmarried or what exactly did it mean at that time, and how is the best way to translate it? And so scholars debate these kinds of things that you know, are really concepts that are important to a lot of people. So definitely translation plays a role in religion as well. 
Just think, if it wasn't for translation issues, we might not have different interpretations of the Bible, and we'd miss out on so many wonderful books and movies like The Da Vinci Code. And Tom Hanks's hair. <laughs> Speaking of which, not Tom Hanks's hair. Speaking of which, translation plays an important role in movies as well. Translation plays a huge role in movies. You know, right now we have foreign language nominees for the Oscars coming out. And, you know, the subtitles that are translated definitely determine the success of the movies with a foreign audience. And, you know, whenever anyone is creating a Hollywood blockbuster, or they hope it will be a Hollywood blockbuster, they also are looking at their international sales and how popular is this film going to be internationally because that will determine how much money it makes. So the translations and the subtitles and the dubbing in some cases are really a tremendously important part of the movie industry, and especially when we're talking about animated films. Um, you know, any movie that comes out from Pixar or from Disney, you know, these movies that have songs and characters with, you know, unique voices and funny voices, they not only just have to think about how to translate some of those things and plays on words and songs that rhyme and things like that, catchphrases, but they actually have to find talent multilingual talent that can imitate the same voices and that will have the same effect in another country. So translation definitely plays a role in entertainment and the movies that we watch. Do you know what is kind of odd about movie translation? Even if the actor in the movie can speak other languages, sometimes their voice isn't used in the translated version of the movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Penelope Cruz, sometimes their voices aren't used when they're translated into their native languages. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, and there are some cases where, and plenty of cases where the actors might even be from another country, but when the movies are dubbed into other languages, they don't use the same actor to do the voice of that actor, even though that actor speaks that language. Schwarzenegger is a great example. Penelope Cruz is another. You know, many of these actors who are from other countries don't end up doing their own voices in their native languages that are heard in their home countries. <laughs> I am about... This October, Natalie is in Chicago to promote the release of her new book. While she's here, she will be visiting a very special translator who is now 91 years old. She describes him as the greatest interpreter who ever lived, and his story is really legitimately amazing. I am about to go visit one of the Nuremberg interpreters who I mentioned in the book. His name is Peter Less. And he was an interpreter for the Nuremberg trials for the, war, the Nazi war criminals. And his entire family was actually murdered at Auschwitz in a concentration camp. His uh, parents and his siblings and his grandparents. And uh, he was a Holocaust survivor and ended up interpreting for these war criminals and the masterminds of the Holocaust, the very same people who were responsible for the deaths of his family members. And um, I'm currently in Chicago, and I'm about to go visit him. Um, he's still alive. We interviewed him for the book, and we tell his story in the book. And uh, I've just assembled a, a bunch of cards from translators all over the world uh, into an album, and I'm going to deliver it to him soon. Uh, his story is definitely my, my, my favorite story in the book. I think one of the most important stories in the book, because the ability to maintain neutrality and interpret accurately for the people who are responsible for the deaths of your own family, I think there is probably no greater interpreter who has ever lived. <laughs> uh, 
than uh, Peter Less. So I'm really looking forward to meeting him later today and, and talking with him. He's now 91 years old, so um, not sure how many more chances I'll have to, to thank him. Well, on that heartbreaking and inspiring note, we'll end today's show. Natalie Kelly was a wonderful guest, mm -hmm. and we were really happy to have had the opportunity to interview her. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can find our website by Googling The Glocks Science Show. We are also on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, so look for us there. And you can also find over 500 of our earlier shows on archive.org. For Charles Lee, Frank Ling, and Elise Kovic, I'm Forrest Gordon. And I'm Joanna Rowell. Thanks for listening, and keep on grokking.